Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with the singular cellist and citizen artist Yo-Yo Ma. There's a shorter produced version of this at Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. Hello? Is this the great Krista? <laughs> is this the great Yo-Yo is the real question here. <laughs> no, you know, I, I, my wife and I listen to you. And we love whenever we get a chance. And and you're just so wonderful. Well, thank you. That means a great deal coming from you. I would say the same you know, thing back. Yeah. I, we listened, and then I would look up your name and find out, oh, my gosh, she went to Brown. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and then she went to Germany. And then it's like, oh, wow, she loves to cook. Oh, that's great. Well, so it's it's really, it's such... Such a treat, except that we're not um, I know. in but one room together. I had hoped for that, but, 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 but hopefully our, our paths will cross in if physically. But, you know, you've, I'm sure you've done ISDN interviews. There's an intimacy to this, to, to just working with the human voice and Absolutely. really having I, I've you heard come you say, Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. You, you, I've heard you say that sound is, you know, can be visual and that, that yeah. that's... And, and I think the whole way you structure the program and you know the way you listen the way uh it's it is very intimate oh well thank you well i'm just thrilled to be in this space with you this morning well thank you are you in new york no um no I'm, you're in minneapolis yes no, where are minneapolis. you mm-hmm. great great i mean i'm in new york a fair amount but uh but this is where we produce the show and you live in Minneapolis? Yes. Mm-hmm. Or St. Paul? Yeah. I live in St. Paul, and our studio is now in Minneapolis. So, Got it. Yeah. Got it. That's great. <laughs> it's it's not exactly like straddling Chinese, Parisian, and American culture, but, you know, practically. The, the trip from St. Paul to Minneapolis is a big deal here. <laughs> I mean, this is this is a definite boundary crossing here. <laughs> <It is. laughs> <laughs> we in St. Paul That's do not right. deign to speak to those rascals in That's Minneapolis. Right. Well, you know, some people say that St. Paul is the last eastern city and Minneapolis is the first city of the West. <laughs> yes, that's, that's great. I guess See, it depends another... on what perspective you have on the world. <laughs> I know. I love that. This is really good. Oh, yeah. That's well, very funny. Well, let's dig in. I just... Um, you know, I've been steeping. I mean, I've been listening to your music forever. And then getting ready for this, I've, I've been reading a lot of other interviews you've given and things you've written. Uh-oh. And so, yeah, I'm so just going to jump in. I'm prepared. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, um, no. And you know where, where I, I want to, st- I want, you know, you, so you were born to Chinese parents in Paris. And then you straddled another world when you moved to the U.S. as a child. And you know, I want to ask the question this way. You know, was there a, a religious or spiritual background to that childhood of yours? You know, however you want to define that. Well, I, I think that um, my, well, as you can tell from from the brief bio 
uh, I grew up pretty confused because yeah. you know, there yeah. would be all these languages floating around, different messages floating around, and and in terms of uh, in terms of a spiritual uh, worldview, you know, my mother was Protestant, my father mm. was more or less Buddhist, and and I grew up more or less Episcopalian, and. <laughs> And, you know, Confused. Okay, and, got it. Um, and um, and so I think I've tried for all my life uh, to make sense of things. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I remember as a five-year-old thinking, you know, at the at the age when people want to, you know, say when I grow up, I want to yeah. do what whatever. Um, I thought that what I really wanted to do was to understand. Mm-hmm. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, that was that was a five year old's wish, yeah. but that gives you a little bit of an indication on on where my mindset was, and I believe that uh, that was before we first came to the United States. Mm-hmm. So already I was kind of, you know, thinking, hmm, mm-hmm. I wonder how things work <clears throat> in this world. Well, that's definitely. That question then, I think, echoes through the rest of your life. So we'll we'll keep coming back to that. Um, now you had already given up the violin by the age of four when you picked when you took up the cello. Um, well, at least I, I I understood early on that in <clears throat> certain paths go nowhere. Mm-hmm. I think I screeched <laughs> and scratched on the violin, and 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 <clears throat> I think to everybody's annoyance in my in my family. So I think I quickly. I think I probably also disliked it, but um, yeah. I actually love the violin today. But mm. I, I, I don't think I may not have had a natural physical affinity to it, which is a very interesting thing because we think of people who have talent to say, "Oh, you have musical talent, mm-hmm. therefore you should be great at this." And and I think that uh, you know here's an example of of a of a kid who just didn't physically take uh, to an instrument of the same family uh, of instruments that he ended up with. Right. And, and you have said that, that coming to the cello was a compromise and an accident. Can you tell that story? <laughs> okay. Um, um, the accident was, after having been uh, <clears throat> essentially... Uh, my parents sort of gave up on my musical talent aptitude and thought, okay, the kid's not going to go into music. So, um, you know, I was allowed to do all kinds of things, play in sandboxes, do whatever. And and one day, we um, there's a very oversized uh, double bass that's maybe about eight feet, nine feet high, in the Paris Conservatory. We went by, saw it, and of course, as a four-year-old, something huge, something big. Oh, I like it. I want to, I want to play that. So I was haranguing my parents about saying, give me this instrument. And of course, it was you know, not possible for a four-year-old. And then the compromise was the next largest instrument which was the cello. <laughs> and that gave us Yo-Yo Ma, the great cellist. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> I'm, I'm a firm believer of, of um, 
accidental meetings mm -hmm. of between, mm -hmm. you know, objects, people, uh, mm -hmm. circumstances, and uh, because I, I, so much of my life has, seems to have been orchestrated in, the, in that way. So obviously, you. <clears throat> You were gifted, and you had an inclination to play. I mean, just reading between the lines, you must have—I don't, I don't want this to sound—you must have had something like, you know, what we now call tiger parents. I mean, you obviously had a house where you were being very seriously encouraged to pursue these things. But, I mean, but what, you know, what I want to— Yes. Yeah, well, go on. Is that— No, no, you go on. At least I had feline parents. You had feline, all right. All right. <laughs> you know? and, and so it, Same family. <laughs> Okay, and so what I, you know, what I want to ask is, at that age of four or five, you know, were you just good at music, or did you did you already love it? Did did you love it, you know, at that age? Well, I think this is a wonderful question. Uh, I, you know, I, as you know, I come from a musical family, so so music was around. Yeah. Uh, the house. My sister played violin, played piano. My father played violin. My mother sang, and she sang beautifully. And um, so, so it was, you know, it was something that uh, was part of the background of of daily life. Uh, did I love it? I think. You know, as a as a child, as a, I, I sort of think that often uh, that before I was fifteen, I was in a pre-conscious state and or a subconscious. Well, weren't state. we all? I mean, well, yes, absolutely. I'm, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, in in developmental terms, I think you uh, you know acquisition of of language so that one yeah. is uh, completely fluent. It's you know, there's a there's an age beyond which it's harder to acquire new languages. And I think, you know, I was in right. that state of being a sponge, essentially just receiving all kinds of information, knowledge, uh, and and just kind of, it's it becomes part of you. Um, so I don't think there was a, a sense of saying, oh, I love it, I don't love it. Except maybe with the violin, which was you don't uh, love it. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, uh, which obviously I didn't take to it. Yeah, you know, it yeah. wasn't not necessarily. Uh, and I, so I think I, um, I never questioned it. Obviously, I think as a child, when you can do something or do something well, and you get attention for it, you get praise for it. it says, oh, you know, what a cute little boy he can play this thing yeah. you know that's yeah. uh there, there's a little bit of the positive reinforcement factor that that you know makes you think oh well then this is uh but but i feel that my uh uh relationship with the sound world has has been pretty much a journey of discovery all of my life and it mm -hmm. continues to be mm -hmm. um and and that's a that's a that's a through line for, for my life and I think I got fascinated by things I remember um, a radio broadcast in um, on French television that uh, I forget at what time let's say it's 6pm or 7pm mm. and then this program would come on and says ici New York and you know and there was and there was a, a, a snippet of of 
Aaron Copeland's music. And and I thought, gee, that's really interesting. You know, and thought no more about it except that something about that moment uh, I still remember um, 50 years later. Right, right. And there's, there is this parallel, really not just parallel, but inter, interconnected, interwoven fascination for you or passion alongside music, within music, with this whole adventure of what it means to be human. Um, so I, I think it's interesting that even though you were something of a prodigy that you then... You didn't immediately pursue that. You went to Harvard and and studied anthropology. <laughs> I mean, do you think even early at that point, you know, did you did these these things take up um, you know comparable places in you? This this fascination with humanity and culture and your 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 life with music. Well, I think uh, I think you point to a very uh, consistent uh, parallel development mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, skill at an instrument versus sort of just trying to figure things out uh, trying to decipher people I think uh, sort of the my <clears throat> I think my lifelong preoccupation in the human realm uh, has always been who did it and why <laughs> Say some more. <laughs> you mean just everything that comes along? That's those are the questions you want to ask. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine a, you know a seven-year-old's um, hmm. mind going from a Parisian landscape of not tall buildings but very interesting rooftops. <sighs> tiled rooftops, you know, sometimes with chimneys and whatever, to the landscape of, of rectangular buildings with an odd, at that time, water tower, you know, a wooden <laughs> sort of barrel at the top of it, and, you know, thinking, what's, what's that? What, yeah. what, what is its purpose? And, and who built these buildings that had such, you know, the pre-war buildings had such wonderful uh, freezes and 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 mm. and architectural detail uh, that was, you know, I mean, it made me think, gee, who who would have built that? You know, what happened here? Somebody did it, right? And 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 this this would go to practically every asset of life. And I think this is when, you know, you talk about the divide between. St. Paul and Minneapolis, it's that same divide that says, uh, you know, why uh, why do people have different habits? Yeah. You know, yeah. why is the yeah. bread square, white, and sliced versus, you know, a baguette that's uh, with that wonderful uh, scent of, you know, baked goods and, in, in, you know, in the morning where you go, you go buy a uh, patisserie, you know, and it's just like <laughs> you, yeah. you, you, you want to grab the, the the closest loaf of bread or croissant in, in, in your hand and, and then going to sliced bread and square cheese that you peel off, you know, in the 60s. <laughs> that's really, that's what we had, yeah. right? Um, 
And so why why was that different? And and then to obviously to language and to behavior to uh, uh, to all kinds of of things that that I was receiving unconsciously, but probably you know early on starting to to at least pose the question why how come and that the land of white sliced bread also had Aaron Copeland yeah that those uh, connections came I think a little later mm-hmm. um, you know I, I was I don't think I was aware of Aaron Copeland until I was a teenager mm-hmm. and uh, but having somehow had an early interaction didn't play with them never did with Leonard Bernstein hmm. and then to find out that they were uh, wonderful colleagues and friends and and you know it then the then the the recognition of relationship building um, came in and that was you know that was ever so fascinating and, and continues to be so so what you just described about experiencing <clears throat> this spectrum of you know how humanity expresses itself in different cultures with all these things architecture food um, I mean the the realm that you uh, immersed in and where you are you know a master um, is this realm of music and what the way you just talked about that actually helps me think about you know my my sense that for you then, you are steeped in music as an entry point to all that. I don't even want to use the word diversity because it's just almost, you know, it's an overused word and it's almost too cold for what we're talking about, right? All that richness, all that variety. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is that right? Does, I mean, and, and, and Absolutely. I think um, Pablo Casals used to talk about, you know, the great uh, uh, cellist from Spain, from Catalan, uh, one of my early... And continues to be heroes uh, uh, talked about infinite variety. Yeah, right. And and I think that's what I seek in you, you know in in the the mind's eye. You know, you look at the uh, to quote Carl Sagan, the billions and billions of stars out there. Yeah. Um, and you, you know what stirs the imagination of. Of, of a young child, you look at the sky and you, you start wondering, right. where are we? You know, how do we fit into this vast uh, universe? And and to Casal saying that within the notes that that he plays, he's looking for infinite variety. Mm. To Isaac Stern saying, um, you know, what actually happens? The music happens between the notes. So what what does that suggest? It suggests that that you have let's say two notes, you identify what they are, uh, so you you know the materiality of it. You have a name for it. You go from A to B. But if you take Stern's words seriously and say, okay, well, what then do you mean when you say music happens between the notes? Well, how do you get from A to B? Is it a, you know, is it a smooth transfer? It's automatic. It feels easy. You glide into the next note. Or uh, you have to reach to get 
to the, you have to physically or mentally or effortfully reach to go from one note to another. Uh, could the next note be part of the first note, or could the next note be a different universe? <laughs> you know, have mm -hmm. you just crossed into some amazing boundary and suddenly the second note is a revelation? So it's 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 and it's your own mental setup when um, when you're when you're thinking about okay how am I going to I can do it let's say let's say physically on an instrument it's very easy to get from A to B right but then uh, I was uh, doing class last night and and we were talking about precisely that sometimes uh, in order to show expression you have to show difficulty even though it may be technically really easy. Other times, in order to show expression, something may be really, really hard technically, but if you want one thing to go to another seamlessly, you have to make it seem really easy. So it's, it's, you know, it's about merging different aspects of one realm, which in the, in the realm of playing an instrument is pure engineering. Right. You know, you can figure out right. exactly how to get there from this, you know, these are the levers you have to push and this is how much you move your bow and this is how where your fingers go. But but the mental process, the emotional process, the psychic investment in trying to make something easy, infinitely hard, uh, is something that takes enormous energy because because in the engineering part of it, it's it's very simple. Are there, were there kind of pieces of music or, you know, experiences um, of working with other musicians or particular concerts? Like, there, have there been cathartic moments where you, where you discovered this or started to be able to articulate it, or even something going on now? I'm just, I'm just wondering if you could embed that in a, you know, a piece of music or a story. Sure. Um, well, I'll give you two. Mm -hmm. um, the first one, um, I, so one of the composers that wrote for cello alone, and um, Bach wrote six of these wonderful suites, yes. uh, and they're different movements. Uh, it, and and if you take that Isaac Stern between the notes, what happens you know, between the notes, um, I have a moment of going between the moment, the end of a movement, to the beginning of the next movement. So actually not necessarily coded or written in by the composer. They're just separate movements. That I remember uh, often playing uh, the loving the connection between the end of the Saraband of the first, the G major suite, going into um, the minuet, and the next movement. Because there was something, uh, a Saraband is like a slow dance, uh, and it goes into a minuet, which is a slightly more lively dance. Yeah. And there's something about the the incredible restfulness of the way the first movement ends and 
to just suddenly the sunlight comes in. You know, there's mm-hmm. a moment where you know you you can you can go into nature and always at any moment and figure out some uh, parallel to what is happening in you know in a sound centric world. And that moment was was amazing for me. I would always you know I wouldn't want to end the day playing just that the end of one movement without also including the other. And so there was you know there was a connective thing. So that's an early age uh, memory. I think I spent my I think when I was 12, I think I spent a year obsessing over um, a trio by Schubert. Um, the second, the E-flat major trio. And there was a recording that I think, and on, on one of those old LPs, which is actually what we had then, mm-hmm. so it's, um, and uh, of a recording by Alexander Schneider, Mieczysław Hroszowski on the piano, Alexander Schneider on the violin, and Pablo Casals on the cello. I think I wore that record out because there was something about that uh, piece that just, it, it, it was probably the first kind of big one piece of music presenting a coherent worldview. Right. You know, it's like a 40-minute long piece. So it's, you know, and and there's another connection there because the the second movement is one of the last pieces Schubert wrote, and he died fairly young. In fact, you know, was in his early thirties, uh, and and he was a great admirer of Beethoven. So I think when he heard Beethoven died, he wrote one of this these funeral march hmm. movements, and and so you know, as usual, it's in a minor key, um, and. And and there's there's a kind of a sigh at the end of a long phrase, bottom, bottom, and uh, uh, like a you know uh, uh, that's it's a descending third in minor. It's just very very, uh, it's you know it has a, obviously a funeral march has a rhythmic sense to it, a rhythmic flow to it, but then you are. Sighing away uh, <laughs> with that melody, and and you go through that movement, which ends in a very desolate place. You go through a, another kind of a minuet uh, thing, and then you have a last movement that's that's uh, very bright, sort of folksy, and and guess what happens at the end of that last movement? <laughs> uh, that theme from the second movement comes back. You have the repeat of that sing-songy feel of that of that uh, sigh that comes at the end of the phrase, and then after two repetitions of that, finally you get into from bottom into a major bottom, and it's that moment that kind of explodes your world. You know, it's a difference of a half step and and probably a 20-minute wait in between. So this is, so this is you know, musical or visual or sensory architecture. Mm. You know, you've embedded something in someone's mind 
about one thing that is, you know, in itself gorgeous, beautiful. And and then time passes by. Uh, whether it's 20 years or 20 minutes, it doesn't matter. And then you hear it again. But then there's that moment where it becomes major. And then the piece ends. I mean, it is is truly one of the most, uh, I mean, for a 12-year-old, probably the most spectacular thing that you could focus deeply on. And then the question uh, remains, well, who was Schubert that was able to do that? Uh, how <laughs> so did there's he do your it? question again. Who did this and yeah. why? Yeah, and how did he do it? Yeah. So how did Casals manage to keep our attention from you know, for something that could have just passed by and nobody noticed. And how did Horshavsky keep the flow of rhythm and harmony going? How did Sasha Schneider manage to sort of carve every note out of something? I mean, I, you start, I started thinking about, you know, music not as notes, but as, as you know, as materials. Mm. You think about, you know, notes. Uh, sure, you can identify the notes, but... If you ask someone to play or sing a note, um, you want it to, it to feel like uh, that it's light. Well, is it light from an incandescent light bulb? Is it light from a laser beam? Is it light that, that has tremendous energy or, or it just dissipates? How, what kind of light? You know, hmm. if it's wood, what kind of wood? Is it a hard wood? Right. Is it a soft wood? Is it, uh, you know, chopped up? Is it a, uh, if it's steel, is it what kind of, you know, if it's earth, what kind of, you know, what kind of minerality do you want to put in the sound? And what's amazing is that, you know, we have words to describe all of these things and you immediately feel what the wood feels like. Or steel, what it sounds like. Yes. You know, you clang yes. on a piece of steel. Earth, you feel like you, you know your hand is digging into the earth, and and maybe you're looking for worms, maybe you're looking for, you know, pebbles or whatever. Uh, and and for each thing that we describe in words, you have a tactile response, yeah. a sense, it's a sensual, yeah. yeah. And it's the same thing with music. So if you think, you know, you like to say that sound can be visual, well. I would claim the same thing, is that you, you, you know, if if I go back to that Schubert piece and there's one thing is in darkness and then the next one 20 minutes later, suddenly the light breaks through. Um, and one thing is maybe more material and and the next thing may be more ethereal. Yeah. So, so it's you know, yeah. it's telling stories, giving narrative, giving substance or meaning to something that's coded. Um, uh, that that I think gets us to uh, to to want to be or, or or want to be involved in a specific world hmm. uh, that you're that that one is describing. So you play and celebrate and encourage many, many, many kinds and forms and genres of music. But um, 
you know, this example is, is classical music. And I did want to speak to you about, you know, classical music in the modern world, in a modern sensibility. And I, I, I mean, I wonder if you would say something about not, not why classical music is superior, but, but, but how classical music distinctively um, works for us and with us. I mean, it seems to me that what you're just describing there is this fullness and drama and sweep of that that a that a that a piece that a classical piece is capable of, and and usually that that's quite unusual, even compared to other kinds of complex music. But I don't I don't know if that generalization works. Um, I I don't know either because, again, you know, I I. I I both like to make sweeping generalizations, mm-hmm. and I also don't like to make sweeping generalizations. Yeah, I know, me too. So I'm always conflicted mm-hmm. uh, in that sense, and and I have friends that will keep me, you know, on the straight and narrow and true path by saying, no, actually, that what you just said is not accurate yeah. because of this, this, this. And I have other friends that you know would would encourage that. So it, it's it's kind of, um, but but if. I were to take your first statement, sort of say, well, you know, as as true or what is different or what whatever. I think uh, I would first of all say that that uh, that the idea of classical music is kind of. Uh, the 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 definition of it bears re-examination that in okay. some ways it's a false category it's a it's certainly a commercial category because you can then <laughs> you know, with that category you can go into a certain world and assume that there's a certain number of things that are going to be there yeah. but um, but you know uh, some people would say well classical music is really uh, uh, you know its roots are church music, court music, yeah. and popular music. Yeah. So they're all mixed in. So, um, and, and, uh, so the sacred and the secular definitely are part of it, uh, part of it. And the sacred, secular, and, and certainly the folk, the folk elements in Haydn and Mozart and Brahms, you know, the Roma people, the, uh, it's, it's, it's all, it's all over the place. Yeah, but you're right. Uh, that's not something um, that's very that's consciously pointed at very often or named. Exactly, mm-hmm. and that's what I mean by uh, uh, large generalizations. Yeah. Because you know, the thing is, uh, let me give you an example. We, you're making a distinction between Saint Paul and Minneapolis, the way that. Uh, and but if we went so and but you because you go to both places and you see things very close up so you could point out to differences you know the river what happens when you cross right. the river what's right. the tradition right. that has been built up in one place or another well but let's say let's talk about Sochi you know the Olympics yeah what do we know about so w- w- the further away we go because it's Further away, there's that great famous New Yorker cartoon that says, you know, for for New York-centric people, it's Manhattan, there's a Hudson River, there's New Jersey, then there's, you know, 
the West Coast. <laughs> and then there's, right. there's Asia. So that's, it's like you get to a larger and larger way of collecting an immense amount of information into one word. Oh, you're from California. Yeah. Oh, this is, you're a West Coast person. Mm-hmm. Ah, you know, are you are you chilling? <laughs> you know, it's like it, it's you. We make these, and and obviously we know it's not true, not quite true, and but it serves a purpose. Yeah, I even I even love though the shifting the you know that even thinking about musical as geographies rather than. Um, you know, t- a timescape, right? Which is classical music. You're right. It sets it in time and makes it sound like something that once was. Right. It's, so it's it's further away. Therefore, you can make a gross general, generalization. Mm-hmm. It's, oh, yes, it's dead white European music. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And, well, what about the classical great composers that came uh, to not just North America, but to South America that took in all the influences of, of indigenous people, including, uh, especially in places like Brazil, the African traditions, mm-hmm. and then created a different sound, a different thing that, that we, we all treasure. And So who would you think of in that category? Just give me an example that people might know. Well, uh, well okay, uh, let me use Argentina f- okay. first. Uh, the music of Astor Piazzolla. Uh, Piazzolla, tango, hmm. nuevo tango. Uh, you know, so here's a man who um, was born in Buenos Aires. His father was a barber. He came to who uh, came to New York for better life when he was a teenager, and he heard. Uh, he went in those days to. Uh, jazz clubs in, in Harlem, loved the music. Then they had to move back because they couldn't make a go of it. Later on, he went to Paris to study with Nadia Boulanger. Uh, and what, the greatest, one of the greatest teachers of music ever, who influenced Stravinsky, Copeland, and tons of, uh, of musicians from everywhere. And she looked at his work and said, oh, you know, not bad. It's a good, you know, you're trying to sound like Bartok and it looks pretty good. Let me see some other stuff that you've written. And he shows her his his uh, tango-influenced music. And she said, wow, you know, the other stuff is okay. But this stuff, you should really continue because that is just, mm. you know, outrageously fantastic. And so he went and then continued to write in that style. So he now has jazz in his background. He's had the sort of the, uh, the contemporary classical uh, skill sets in his background. He has a tango uh, music in his background. So he goes back, he writes, you know, this new form of can- tango. And there's this famous story that he goes into a, a cab, a taxi, in Buenos Aires, and as soon as the cab driver recognized Piazzolla, says, get out. You are the one that ruined tango. <laughs> <laughs> so, so here's this man who's gone through, you know, many things, had lots of different experiences all embedded in his work. He's, he's evolving something. Um, and so Piazzolla, to this day, is claimed by everybody. Mm. He's claimed by 
world music, classical musicians, jazz musicians, you know, he's one of us because he's, you know, he's put in and people recognize the in in his music their own DNA in it. Hmm. So if if you uh, could could propose if you could if you could replace the words classical music with another phrase uh, or some other words, what would they be? Um, I would say that um, well, you know, most people who've tried they just say music, <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> uh, and <laughs> music of our world, uh-huh. uh, you know, or any kind of, and obviously uh, classical music, which had roots in uh, in improvisation, Bach, Mozart, Beethoven were some of the greatest improvisers of their time, mm. and uh, uh, in fact were renowned for what they were able to do, um, but then also wrote things down. We know their work because there were no recordings at the time of the music that they wrote down. Mm. Um, so I would, you know, I would have a template for uh, just good musicians that pe- as people who who know something. <laughs> good very, music. Very, yeah, good yeah. music. Look, or any type of music can uh, could. Is part of can be part of good music in the sense that, but I'm not even saying good music. I'm mm. saying good musicians. Yeah, right. Would be able to you know to compose, mm-hmm. to to uh, to improvise, uh, to be virtuosic in what they do, and uh, can easily absorb other influences and make it organically their own so that you know new influences are embedded so there's the process of constant growth and then finally uh uh the last quality would be the musician that actually is able to transfer to inject uh all of their knowledge and give it to somebody else so that they can actually look at the world and figure it out for themselves Mm. without uh the 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 first musician being there so giving independence to that knowledge so whatever you own that's yours you can actually give to somebody else uh so that it exists independently it's a process of birth it's a process of constant cultural rebirth hmm that's lovely so so it seems to me also that even as you, as you know, as you described, you've sometimes spoken of a forensic musicology that you, you know, you were talking about Schubert. You know, you're asking oh. who did this and why. What, what, why? It seems to me you're also doing that all the time in your life of music with, um, with creators, musical creators who are with us, <laughs> playing music, making music with so many others, and. Um, it seems to me that, um, and I was discussing this with somebody uh, yesterday who had actually seen you in concert, I believe, with Emmanuel X. Mm-hmm. This, there's this quality of listening, and I don't know if that's the right word or if that's the word you would use, but of, uh, of you, you know, listening to and with another musician, um, so, so, do you know what I'm describing, and and how would sure. you describe it? 
Um, well, I think uh, you and I know that no matter what you say, how you say it, the actual reception of words and intention from another person is always a little different from what you may have intended. That's why telephone is so so interesting to play, mm. right? You, you, you say something to somebody and it go around by the time it comes back to you. It often could be something very different. Yeah. And, but I think in some ways uh, what I know musicians try to do is to ramp up awareness. Yeah, I mean, listening is, it's, it's not, this is not just about what you're hearing, right? It's about leaning in with your whole presence. Right, Picking exactly. up That's their right. presence, right? Yeah. yeah, I think all of what music tries to do uh, in, in the most, uh, in the most sort of, uh, what is it, simplest way of describing anything that happens in music is uh, what is regular and what is irregular. So, meaning that you have to have a base from which you say this is, this is that something that we're springing from. Mm-hmm. But if you just describe that base, it's not particularly interesting. So, at some moment, it has to become irregular to say, oh, "Wow, you know, I want to grab that moment." Mm-hmm. And I think it's that uh, the tension or dichotomy between those two factors that gives us. Um, the what we might call ordinary to extraordinary. Hmm. And how do you do that? Well, having uh, so you, you usually when you go to the supermarket, you may not be at your most intense, aware, listening you, you know, you're looking for the feel of the vegetable, you know, and you're mm-hmm. looking for something, but, but you may be thinking other thoughts, but when you're totally aware, when you're in, you know, in the pocket, in the zone, in the, you know, in that state of mind that is open to the state of mind that the, uh, like a piece of music requires, then you are focused, but also tremendously wide open. Yeah. And you want to be in that in that state. So one state that I could describe is that I like to think of, you know, we've all been uh, uh, for obviously, hopefully every day between the state of awake and asleep. And in that state, I would like to make a claim that you have your consciousness may have access to all the experiences of your unconsciousness. So so you're you you have access to both. But you're not incredibly active because to be active requires a different kind of of mechanism that takes a certain amount of brain space. But in the brain space of where you're physically, you know, in a in a state of let's say repose. Uh Sometimes, do you ever think that you have great ideas 
that when you're almost awake, you you or what just before you were asleep, you said, "Oh my gosh, I," you know, and you want to write it down yeah. because if you yeah. don't, you're going to forget it. Go. Right? It goes into your temporary memory and it just yeah. just goes away. Um, it's like dreams, right? If you don't somehow activate uh, the the memory bank of remembering the dream you just woke up with, you'll forget it uh, later on, more or less. Yeah. Okay, so that's the state. Uh, of for I think one of the states that you want to be in in order to be maximally aware of your environment so that you can react to it. So when but you're you playing, to to when you're playing yeah. music with someone, you're yeah, in that that's, state. That's really interesting. Uh huh. So that, but you're you're in two different states, but you have to kind of switch back and forth. Yeah. Because you can't, you know, in in that first state, you can't be. If you start to move around a lot, you kind of lose that. Yeah. So you have to kind of both be in the state of being able to to react and you know in it uh, with great immediacy, but at the same time you have to f- switch back and forth to that other state that actually allows for anything that comes in to be that needs to be different you can react to you can kind of uh you can conjure up you can you can be in full connectedness with your imagination bank yes and so there's a you know and i think this may be important to name because when somebody if somebody sees you on stage there you know and and even if you're together with someone else it, you know this other person is very you know skilled and there's a feeling of um of control right of of you know mastery perfection or you know but 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 what you're that experience you're describing it involves um is is vulnerable, right? I mean, and you know, so my analogy, which is quite different, but still, I think you know that the difference between listening, which is waiting for the other person to talk and then asking the next question that's on the page, you know, the listening, which is which is entering a conversation and being open to taking in whatever happens and not, in fact, then being in charge of what will happen. Absolutely. Um, it, it, you know that feeling that anything could happen is what can make something wonderful. I mean, that's that's what you're describing. But it's, I think that the state you're in and the experience you're having and that you're making is much more vulnerable than than an audience might realize. Well, I think yes and no because you know I think um, remind you we're only describing two different states so far. Okay. Right. And okay. and I think another state of mind is yes. A lot of artists will say, "Oh, you know, I have to make myself so vulnerable," and that is absolutely true. It's it's like you have to open up. You can't be so if you're well defended. You know, I'm going to show you how strong I am. Mm-hmm. Then that precludes the idea of so saying, actually. I'm very weak, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because weakness can be a strength as a form of expression, mm-hmm. right? So if you only show strength, you're showing a one-dimensional uh, aspect of 
something that you're trying to describe. If you only show weakness, obviously one thing, but if you show both yeah. and you show the variety in between, then you have, you're describing a multi-dimensional world. Yeah. Right? Which is what we are, I guess. Yeah. So I think another state that I'm fond of describing is, is um, you know, when I come to Minneapolis, I'm a guest in your town. So I, I need to do, you know, I need to respect what happens in Minneapolis. Uh, I don't make a lot of jokes about Minneapolis. <laughs> Kidding. Um, and, but when I'm on stage, all of you that are in the hall are my guests. Mm. So I'm, you know, I'm the host of a wonderful party. You're all my guests. And which means that because, because, you know, I've got the, essentially, I, I have the, the floor. You know, I have the floor with my colleagues and we want you to have a wonderful, you know, whatever, hour and a half, 25 minutes, yeah. whatever it is. While I'm on stage, you are all my guests because that's sort of like the, the uh, you know, uh, the unsaid agreement. Um, so while you're my guest, if something bad happens on stage, I often think of Julia Child. You know, <laughs> oh, the chicken's <laughs> fallen on the floor. Yes. Oh, we'll pick it up and put it right back. <laughs> it's like, you know, and, and you know what? Everybody's with you. Right. Because, and even if nobody's going to touch the chicken, they're not going to let that moment mm. spoil their evening. Mm. They'll remember, oh, yes, you know. Oh, oh that's so great. That's that. such a great image for life, isn't it? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, oh, well, this happened, yeah. you know, boom. But actually, that's not why we're here, to watch uh the bad things that happen and so it's so whatever you practice for on the engineering side that fails uh is is all right because we have a greater purpose the greater purpose mm. is that we're communing together and we want this moment to be really special for all of us because otherwise why bother to have come at all yeah Right. Yeah. So it's not like, you know, it's not about how many people are in the hall. It's not about, oh, this is, in, you know, it's not about proving anything. No. It's about sharing something. It's about being whole together, too, isn't it? Which includes yeah. There's all something those things that's that so could go wrong. <laughs> absolutely. Uh -huh. It's so, and, and you know, uh, uh, rewind to... September 11th, on the morning of September 11th, I was in Denver. Uh, at 9 o'clock, my wife calls me and says, you know, turn on the television. Yeah. Something bad is happening. Turn on the television. I'm supposed to go to Colorado Springs on the 11th and to Denver to play another concert on the 12th and the 13th in Phoenix, Arizona. Three different orchestras. And so in the wake of this, you know, horrific thing... Every uh, orchestra and had to decide, do we cancel or do we play? Hmm. And, and what every orchestra decided to say was, we're going to play. 
We may change the program a little. We're going to actually, you know, be together and have a moment of literally of being together. And music will be the 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 way that that we will come together because we're asserting ourselves as a community, as a people, as a city, as whatever, and and we need to be together. So to this day, yeah. now this is now how many, 12 years uh, later, it, when, if I go back to any of those places, not a single person does not remember vividly what that evening meant, you know. And, you know, uh, I think that's a wonderful image for some language you use of being a citizen artist and that um, this insistence uh, that this must be at the table, arts, uh, as we, in music, as we define ourselves cu- culturally and, and weighted as defining alongside politics and economics and the things we discuss in a more that we sometimes seem to take more seriously. Well, I think, you know, it depends how much room we have for what, you know? So if, yeah. if very often, you know, if I'm in a particular profession, that thing and how well I do in that profession can become a, a, a totally uh, uh, all-encompassing preoccupation. And... Uh, and and the thing is, you know, again, what is it, and why? <laughs> what are we doing here? Yeah. What? Uh, who are we? And I often ask musicians, "What do you think of yourselves as? You know, the instrument that you play as as your identity, or do you think of yourself as a musician, or do you think of yourself as a human being? And what is the what is the ratio between the three? I think that you know the citizen part." Uh, is the part of the is somewhere towards the the human part because we're yeah. looking at you know, how we fit in within society and and if we look at our constitution uh, you know that is uh, we have an ideal uh, an, an ideal of what our nation could and should be like and then we have laws that suppose you know try to implement what what those things might be and um now let's look at our voting record let's looking at how many people vote right there's there are very few things that are required of us uh as citizens and and but so so how do we participate i know i for one often feel frustrated to say you know there's so many things that are happening and I have nothing to do with it. Yeah. I'm not connected to it. So therefore I can't care about it because it's just a waste of time and energy uh, because it's all beyond me. Now that's kind of like giving up. And I it think that's an true. experience so many people have so many people yeah. who do different things in different corners. Yeah. That's right. So, you know, it's all Washington's fault. Right, right. You know, it's as if, like, as soon as you enter into the Beltway, you know, you become, uh, 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 you know, like, you change. You, you turn into something different from what I think you should be. And, and it's like, 
so there's something there's something that's not or it's occupy wall street or it's you know it's entitlements or it's you know it's we always it's really easy to say it's not my fault it's someone else's fault but ultimately if we if we are the democracy that we claim to be it does require full participation mm. you know and and that's that's the anomaly that that i'm sort of trying to wrestle with in myself too you know so this is not about oh look at look at me i'm so no i'm trying to understand this thing because uh, so in my view as a musician i'm thinking okay well what what in the world can i do yeah. uh you know let me find some ways okay there's the public education crisis let's go into something where I feel maybe we might be needed and where we can help out. You know, essentially it's it's like what my wife always says to me, don't just make lists, just ask, you know, what can I do to help? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Right? You know, and and just ask me, what can I do to help right now? And and I think if we ask, uh if we even start to look you will find lots and lots of needs. Yeah, I, I you know, love this language of Rilke about living the questions, and I think there's, I think there is something powerful about posing the question. You can't live into it unless you ask it. Right, but once you ask it, mm-hmm. you see, you already put yourself in a position of slight vulnerability because you don't know the answer. Yeah, and that's you know, I think there's part of us that wants. All of us want a certain kind of stability and security to say, you know, this is, if it, you have too much security, you get bored. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you need something. But, but we are sometimes living in an age where everybody needs to have the right answer. But then if everybody has the right answer, they contradict one another, then obviously, <laughs> you know, it's not always We're nobody. not getting anywhere. Exactly. Yeah. So, so it's, you do have to put yourself in a more vulnerable state. And and I think that by doing that, uh, you can actually begin to see where the solutions may lie. At least you start to open yourself to someone else who might propose yes. a solution that start to lead us in a certain position. Yeah, that's Not great. to the position of always being right, but mm-hmm. a position that actually solves uh, pressing problems mm-hmm. and needs and recognizing needs and I think that's where the basis of of you know a cultural citizen or citizen musician comes in because I think that um, you know as musicians so music actually very easily uh, crosses spaces yeah. you know you yeah. go from you go from people's earbuds into concert halls into living rooms into cars into what so you, you can it can exist. Uh, across a lot of different uh, physical spaces and geographical spaces, which is so, huge, which is which huge, which can be huge. Yes. It can be huge. It yes. exists in, you know, and, and and so one part of music may not be be good, but then maybe it's really alive in choruses and churches in a particular state, you know, mm-hmm. or uh, the the bands may be. Um, uh, incredible in one state, but then there's no room for that in another one. Uh, there could be, you know, you could have all kinds of of strengths and and 
in different places at different times. And I think uh, when, you know, when there are groups like uh, Community Music Works that, you know, this group from, well, you must know them from Brown. Yeah. Uh, they started the, uh, so a quartet that graduated <laughs> from. Singing, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they, they took over a storefront. And uh, I think Sebastian, who runs it now, you know, it's and they've actually revitalized a certain area of Providence and and they've become kind of a community center where where people feel safe. They come for music, they right, come for right. lessons, whatever. And they've been honored by all kinds of, you know, awards, MacArthur's and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But this is a group of people who probably when you graduate from college, if you're lucky to go to college, you graduate from college, you're thinking, uh-oh, what am I going to do? Yeah. Right? What am I going to do with my life? Well, they found a way that I think, you know, thinks, I think that's great citizenship. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, I want to ask you, um, I want to ask, I'm curious about your relationship with your cello or your cellos. You Probably. Do you have more than one, or do you have one? Uh, yeah, I play on a number of instruments. Okay. Some, two of them are old, and and several of them are new. I mean, you know, and I, I'm wondering <laughs> is it is it like is it like a part of your body? Is it like a friend? Is it like a family member? Can you can you talk about about that? Um, as usual, I feel two ways about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> See how conflicted I am. You know? <laughs> It's a wonder I can get up in the morning. Uh, it's, should I get up? Why should I get up? <laughs> Who am I that thinks I should get up? <laughs> you know, it gets very confusing. Uh, so, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I love uh, the instruments I play, uh, but I also like to be separate from them. And so I think the 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 image I have of the four strings of the instrument and the bow I use is that the bow, uh, which draws out sound, are the lungs. Mm-hmm. And the strings that are on the instrument are the vocal cords. So, you know, so if you think of Stephen Hawking, who can't speak and who can't whatever, but just by a slight movement of either the eyes or yeah. a finger, can actually you you can get to hearing words that he is thinking that comes out, and and uh, we actually then hear his voice through a series of uh, amazing mechanical inventions but we really hear the construction of his his uh, thinking pattern and I think of instruments as sort of the extension of you know the the, the lungs and the vocal cords mm. and so uh, you live with what you have you know you live with the vocal cords you have with the lungs you have and and the instruments are you know, great pieces of, in a way, of of uh, of sculptural architecture. You know, designed to give life to sound and beauty and all, all of those aspects. And you know, I can talk a lot about sort of 
you know, the golden periods of certain uh, instrument making and why it became that way, whatever. But f for now, it's really, these are relationships with separate instruments and each of them has a different quality. Uh, the Stradivarius I play on has, is more of a tenor instrument, meaning that the, the, the core uh, sort of sound that, you know, the greatest string might be the top string. Uh, a Montagnana Venetian instrument I play on may have uh, as its core the lower string, the lowest string. Mm. So it becomes more like a bass baritone. And so there are differences the way the differences in 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 wines, in 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 all kinds of in, in voices, uh, in hum, human voices also. In human voices. Mm -hmm. Right. And so so you try and work with the the specific characteristics of the instrument and then you try and balance out what needs to be in another space, which is, uh, if it's a, a concert hall that you're playing in, I think of each concert hall as a different instrument because each concert mm. hall has separate qualities. You know, so obviously in a in a theater it has a dry acoustic because you really want to hear words, but in in a place like uh, Orchestra Hall in um, Minneapolis, it, it is mm -hmm. in Minneapolis. Uh, it is it is reverberant because it wants to blend the sounds of various instruments, and so so it has a longer reverb, hmm. you know, two seconds or something. So, and then there are multi-purpose halls that are c configured for whatever the needs may be. If it's a conference, obviously on the drier side. If it's you know, so so I think. Knowing the space that you're in is really important and matching it and and using the instrument that you know with its qualities so that so in a dry hall you may want to warm up the sound on on stage. In a very reverberant hall, you may want to make sure that if you're playing a lot of fast things with articulation, you know, you don't want it to sound like yeah. right? Because if it's so you, you need to kind of space things out and one instrument may be better at spacing things out. Another may be better at creating a warm sound. I'm not saying that you match the instrument to each hall, but that you just want to know the characteristics so so you can start to work in a way that works for the listener. So you're never because, even just working with the instrument. You're working with the instrument and the environment. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's the environment. And as I love to say to people that want to listen to me is that if you're going to perform someplace, please don't fall in love with what you've constructed. It's like in the Marines, don't fall in love with your plan mm. because the plan's always going to change. And you need to make sure that the audience is the most important person in the room. Oh. Because if you want to make something that's you know, that's memorable for somebody else, as well as for yourself. You want them, the purpose of playing, of doing live music is that it's, it's, it's like a witness of, of, you know, a communal witnessing mm. of something. And if, if the audience member forgets and says, honey, what did we do last night? You know, it, you're an abject failure, okay. even if the hall was packed. You know, it's like, why was I there? You know, like, 
(laughs) And if I forget at the end of the year where I was, then, you know, that kind of lessens the impact of what I would hope to have achieved. So it's like, you know, I started thinking about that in my 20s because I was playing so many concerts at the end of the year. Sometimes I would say, you know, I have no idea what happened between you know, September, November, or or January and May, because it was so long ago. Right. I don't, and I'm thinking, well, that's that's there's something unhealthy about this. So you know, you know it becomes yeah. Well, somebody Go said ahead. to me um, who'd seen you perform up really close. I think maybe when you, it's one of my producers. I think maybe it's when you you did a performance at NPR. Um, uh-huh. Maybe it's maybe you were being interviewed there, and she said. Um, in a way that she had never seen before since she said that you radiated joy. Um, and I'm curious about, and I, I've seen that for, at, at a little more of a distance in, in your performances, and I wonder if, um, is that something you're conscious of? Um, is, is it something that developed over time, uh, has developed over time? Well, I think it it has some connection to the hosting and guest mm-hmm. thing. Imagine being a host of a party and and walking out and saying, "Oh, so you're here." Right. <laughs> <laughs> but in your twenties, so, when you're saying, you know, when you when you're when you're talking about your twenties, when you maybe couldn't remember all the places you'd been, I mean, is is this a presence that you that you grew into that you settled into? Um, possibly. I mean, I, I don't have. Uh, that good a memory for yeah. you know what what uh, and a, a state of mind of you know from thirty years ago forty years ago so I I think that uh, I think there are a couple things I think about that if you're doing something this is the public private uh, thing mm-hmm. that that if you're doing something in public. You have to be responsible for what you're putting out, uh, and because you know it's that part of that host thing. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, because especially if you have a public that's, you know, that works hard, has taken time out of their lives to come to something. Uh, there's, there's again an unspoken uh, contract. Uh, contract may be too strong a word, uh, relationship or some expectation between what is, you know, what what their their expectations are, what your expectations are, and what, you know, what are we doing there? Um, I think on radio, it's the same thing. You, hmm. you just, uh, you know, if you can't be a pessimist, uh, Yes, on, but you can't. Stage. You 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 don't have to be joyful, right? And I don't think that's something either that you can manufacture. Um, you know, you can be you gracious can, without being joyful. <laughs> but true, there's some quality to your presence in when you're playing your music. Maybe all the time. Um, I, I just um, wonder: Do you know? Do you feel that, or is it just something about you? Well, maybe it's a, it's a, maybe the joyfulness could be 
the hope of joy. Hmm. You know, it doesn't... The intention. You know, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. I think, you know, I, I often say optimism is a philosophy. Hmm. Unless you're obviously, you know, 24-7 optimistic. <laughs> well, then it could be a, you know, could be a, a blessing and a curse. But you're, but, yeah, right. <laughs> your dog died. Oh, really? How wonderful. <laughs> But I think I hear you saying you choose you choose joy. I think so. Well, certainly in performing, uh, it is. I I think that is that is a choice, because you know it really doesn't matter what where I am in life, but I truly am happy and grateful that people are have taken the time to show up. Yeah. So it's like you know. You go to a memorial service, and if you are the person that's hosting the memorial service, you say to people, I'm happy you came. Hmm. Right? I mean, yeah. you, you know, you don't say, oh, I, I can't talk to you right now because I'm, you know, <laughs> you somehow, so it's, you, you can layer joy over grief. You can layer <laughs> Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's it's a, it's a it's it's absolutely uh, something that that uh, isn't that also. I, I feel you know we talked about how the limits of calling it classical music, but but the great classical music, or what we, just the great music. Um, well, it's true. Great music has this capacity to evoke and contain and encompass many different emotions all at once the way our lives do right i think so that's right and and there was this thought that uh in in various uh at various historical moments that uh you know that music is a form of uh elevated living there was that mm. sense you know that there was mm. the the almost uh uh, it, it it was used for, you know, nationalistic purposes. Oh, I must create the music, the sound of my country. You know, mm. and it's Hungary. No, this is this is you know this is the French traditions. This is the Italian tradition, mm. the bel canto. You know, and, and there's a pride of something associated with it, um, and a kind of uh, a. Uh, a yearning toward something we want to be. Uh, obviously, entertainment, social, all of that. But but in the classical realm, it is, uh, uh, y- you know, there was this the sense of Boulanger used to talk of music. Uh, Nadia Boulanger, who uh, was this great French teacher that taught, you know, Piazzolla and and Copeland and Stravinsky and uh, she used to say that uh, being a musician for her was uh, was a priesthood. Hmm. That you know you really are. Uh, it's it's something it's something you serve in. Uh, you don't. Uh, it's it's not you know it's it's something different than we think of well in the states for example 
uncategorized when we do our tax statements or when we come into a country as an as an entertainer. Right. right. Which you know, so yeah. So it doesn't matter what I think I am, but but you know, in the eyes of of the law of the government, I'm an entertainer. Um, but that doesn't really and, do it, does it at all? Well, no, but I yeah. am. Well, you know, it well, does. It can. And, yeah. you know, I'm, if I'm a host, I'm, you know, yeah. I'm entertaining guests. And, you know, I'm not saying that that elevates or cheapens it. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, this is a word. Yeah. Uh, but you could read into the word whatever you want. Uh, but I, I think that... You know, but in the tradition that that we're talking about, you know, and with the example of Nadia Boulanger saying that um, about that, that, that to be a music that musician uh, that, that you 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 are a priest, yeah, you are entering into a priesthood. You serve that. You're looking for an elevated sense of of being in existence, at least, you, you know, w- that the music should. Uh, somehow uh, make us better. Yeah. Now, of course, we live in the 21st century, and I'm not sure whether something like that works. Uh, I would like to think that that's certainly part of what we try to do. Well, uh, you know, there's. I, I, I looked back. Um, Getting ready to interview you at that appearance you made on in Mister Rogers' Neighborhood oh. back in the twentieth century. I love. Mr. Yeah, <laughs> I know you do. It was clear that you do, and I was so struck. Now I think I was watching. I don't know where this came from, YouTube or something, but I didn't hear you answer this question. But to to to, to, to the point you just said about about the great, res, you know, potentially the great responsibility, the priesthood of being a musician. You know, he he ended by saying, "Do you know what a present that is? When you play something for somebody, it's just like giving them a present." That's so typical of Mister Rogers, isn't it? Yeah. Speaking of which, you know, he so we think of him as you know the children's uh, uh, program that he uh, created for so many decades, and and what's funny is Mister Rogers lives on yes I mean there's so many legions of people that uh, that grew up with him and and they're still in a way growing up with him and and he of course was was uh, a minister and, and I forgot that were, I had forgotten yeah. that and he, he his children are you know the children of the show in the neighborhood mm-hmm. are his ministry and and what a beautiful thing that is um, yeah uh, I think that when I play for people, uh, it's not a transaction. Yeah. See, that's the thing that's really important. So, again, we separate ourselves because, you know, nowadays uh, we are considered, you two are a brand. You know, mm-hmm. you're a commercial mm-hmm. entity. There's a certain yeah. commercial value to what you do, to the program. There's all of that. But if I ask you, Christy, what, what, you know, what is your value, that probably would not be the first thing that comes out of your mouth. No. Right? Mm-hmm. So there are other things that come in first, but that's, all, but, you know, everything is, so it's, a, it's in fact 
a kind of uh, it's it's all about priorities, priority and value. For Mister Rogers, his audience, his children, were his priority in this, and I can prove it because whenever people wrote to him, he wrote back handwritten letters <laughs> in his beautiful script, and he would and whenever. Uh, someone wrote to him about something, you know, involving uh, my appearance on the show. He would send a photocopy of that letter mm. and his response mm. to them. Okay, that's a level of detail and concern that I think is, you know, it's it's hard to emulate because, yeah. boy, that takes so much time well, and it's yeah. but that's a model we can strive towards the state of being you know in mr rogers orbit but you know few of us would ever succeed in doing that but that doesn't mean we shouldn't stri strive towards it because because what he did was he created a safe world for children and where all the doubts of a child if your parents are getting divorced what does that mean? If you're in the bathtub and the water is going down the drain and you're a toddler, might you also go down the drain? You know, yeah. those childish, childlike uh, fears and, 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 and that he was able to create that safe virtual world and Right. It was right. amazing. And to this day, uh, you know, there are people that are great Mr. Rogers fans, and then there are people who are socialized who say, oh, my gosh, you know, that's really boring. And, uh, well, because often when a parent comes home and they feed the fish and, you know, toss their sneakers up in the air, it's not particularly meant to be exciting. It's just, you know, <laughs> your parents back. And, and, and it's like, I, I, so I, to this day, when someone says, you know, what are you most proud of to have accomplished? One of the things I always say, and I never say more than two things. Uh, I say that to have appeared in these children's shows, Mm. And, and to know was another one, right? 20 years later, yeah. someone comes up to me and say, and says, you know what? I saw this episode. This is what it made me want to do. Right. Uh, and they would stand in line, you know, backstage, wait for <sighs> half an hour, you know, go through. And they're like, you know, late teenagers or uh, people who don't necessarily have that much patience. Uh, and to know that that's the effect of what he has done for millions of people is that's, you know, I am so proud to have been part of that. It's a wonderful image also of, you know, as you say, he was also an entertainer for tax purposes probably, but entertainment is a kind of gift economy. Um, a gift economy. I like that. Yeah. Can I borrow that? Yes, you um, can absolutely borrow it. Relational, <laughs> not transactional. Said. Yes, exactly. Yeah. We just, we just have a few minutes, but I, I think oh, that this has been just so wonderful. And uh, there's so many other, you know, it's, I feel like I could talk to you for hours. Um, but I think maybe where I'll end is uh, I'm, I'm collecting, um, you know, definitions of beauty. I feel like beauty is... Uh, 
Well, you know, so, so I'll give you some that I love. You know, in Islam, beauty is a core moral value. Um, you know, scientists and mathematicians, and you've named a few, you know, talk about, you know, if an equation is not elegant and beautiful, it's probably not true. There's this equation of beauty with truth. The, uh, the philosopher and poet John O'Donohue said, beauty is that, which, that in the presence of which we feel more alive. I wonder, I mean, beauty is a word you've used in this conversation. You use it a lot. Obviously, it's just there in what you do, whether you're talking about it or not. I wonder if you'd talk to me about the meaning of beauty for you or the power of beauty in the world. Wow. Uh, what a simple question. I know. <laughs> um Um, I think I can't say the word beauty without also equating it with the word transcendence. Mm. Uh, because it seems like, you know, there's so many different things that are beautiful to so many different people. But I think beauty is often an encapsulization of a lot of different things in a certain moment, a frame. Let's say it could be, yeah. you know, music. It could be uh, a poem. It could be an event. It could be in nature, in uh, and often, possibly most often in nature. But um, I think when that encapsulated form is is received, there's there's a moment of of uh, reception and c cognition of the thing that is some ways startling. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the moment you solve an equation, you know, the moment that, uh, that you, something is revealed in either in your own head or physically, materially revealed, there's, when that moment happens, when, uh, in the Sistine Chapel, when you know, uh, when you see the the finger, you know, Adam yeah. just about to die. There's that moment where something is being transferred. I think in in uh, uh, even when we observe nature. Uh, so so if we are part of nature, and we observe nature, but we're part of the human realm, and there's that moment which essentially uh, there's a transfer of life. Mm. So even if you think you know nature is inanimate and therefore, but the, but the beauty of nature, but it's it's the human cognition of that vastness, the awe and the wonder, and the you know uh, something that's in a way bigger than yourself. You can go into the micro world and discover, you know, how a virus turns itself on and off. That could be an enormous, amazing moment, even though it's in a micro world. But you know, uh, when it you, is something that's bigger than ourselves. When you, that phrase, it's a transfer of life, I think is also a wonderful way to talk about music, about what happens when you, in the experience of music, Playing it, yeah. making it, or receiving it. 
Well, I think I think that's that's true. You know, in the in the Silkwood Ensemble, I'm fond of of being able to quote a number of 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 incidents where uh, that when you know when the uh, Ko Mizaki, the the shakuhachi player, which is a bamboo flute, when he plays a piece of music that was written after, let's say, I think the Tokyo Fire of 1927, and he plays this sort of thing over and over again, and it's kind of, uh, it's certainly deeply spiritual and mournful. I've had more people come to me and say, you know, this is the most extraordinary thing I've heard. Or, you know, if, and Christina Pato is a Galician bagpiper, uh, plays a gaita, and she and Wutong come across the stage uh, at one another, or, or or with Ko, you know, so a bagpipe and a shakuhachi, and they're they're playing a a song, a Galician song, that uh, that is the equivalent of when someone crosses the River Styx. You know, you go from the the world to the underworld, mm, and, right. and there's the boatman that carries you through, and they walk across the stage, and you know that to me. You know, I get the goosebumps of seeing this, you know, incredibly uh, wonderful but very powerful and penetrating instrument. And with the two of them just crossing by, you know, I get a time, space, geography uh, sort of uh, uh, crossing moment that cognitively uh, makes me aware of the vastness of what, you know, of what basically humans all over the world have been trying to, to express for millennia, you know, whether mm-hmm. it's cave paintings in, in Lascaux or, or it's Buddhist paintings in, in you know, Dunhuang or it's uh, St. Peter's or, you know, it's, it is, it's, I mean, people have for ages been trying to code the 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 awesomeness of 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 what you know of the uh, the infinite variety of <laughs> possibilities of, of variety. creation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, like you know, with the Silk Ensemble, it's really that kind of thing where we're trying to join people together in what might be an unusual way, but in fact has become more and more the usual, which elicits sometimes in people uh, you can turn fear into joy mm. when you receive something that's living that's in that goes inside you because it becomes your own right you know, I think right. I think forever we've been debating the you know us versus them type issue mm-hmm. and and one of the things that I feel that is so great within our country, that you know, people are talking about economic competition, political competition. It's now what's Russia doing, and what's you know, all of the stuff that's that's always in the news. But one of the things we don't talk about is that within our country, within our demographics, we actually contain uh, pretty much uh, all. Yeah, pretty much almost all of the world's uh, population groups. So all of them are in us. So. <laughs> exactly. And what, but if we use that really well, mm-hmm. that means we have actually access into 
the hearts and minds of everybody in the world. Only if we use our po own population mm -hmm. well and to do it, you know. And that's, that's a very powerful thing because if we do that, then, we, then our decisions, our cultural, our economic and political decisions will be based on much greater knowledge and we will probably make fewer mistakes in our you large, know, I, you know, I, just plans. where you started about the thing that, you know, I, I, I think even that your your spiritual sensibility from the earliest days was this pursuit, this desire to understand, and and I, I almost hear you saying like in everything you do and through your music, the pursuit of understanding itself also is a thing of beauty, a source of beauty. Well, that's that's a quest, you know. I mean, yeah. it's a probably a lifelong quest, and and you know, which is, of course, uh, you know, it's 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 never ending, and um, but you don't want to make, well, you know, you don't want to make the the, well, the question is, there's the Faustian bargain, hmm. right? I mean, so people have written about it. You don't want to make that Faustian bargain. And yet you want to understand. And that's a conflict in itself. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Silk Road um, because I will we'll we'll obviously Excuse mention me. that in the I'm show. I'm sorry to interrupt. I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but did you want to book more time? No, we, 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 need, to, we need to close. I'm, I'm, um, I just, I wonder, is there anything else you wanted to say? Anything to, to finish? Um, we've, we went so many places. Well, uh, you're so amazing, and it's and you know talking with you is every bit as uh, as enlightening as I could have possibly hoped, and <laughs> um, and, uh, and and really, I, I would just close with saying that that just to follow that thought is that you know what we've tried to do in Silk Road over the last fifteen years, uh, you know, the, uh, crossing boundaries and all that is actually I hope. Uh, is one of many models that's available to us to try and actually bring our country together so that it is the most vibrant and creative and enlightened citizenry. Mm. Uh, it, you know, because because we have this population base, because we have those ideals, because we you know we say we do and we just you know and if we act on it uh, in you know each one of us and we find ways where we can do that, then we create our own network that is, is would be, you know, incredibly uh, uh, powerful and enlightening at the same time. Well, it's, it's just been a thrill to speak with you. I'm so looking forward to turning this into radio. I think it's going to be probably... Um, later this month or next month. We'll let you know when that's happening. Um, it will be so fun to layer this with music, which we can do, you know, in the, oh, in, that's with the one beauty of radio. So just thank you. I think we have to release you, release well, your thank studio. thank you. It's so great to, to, to speak with you and all best to you. I hope I, we get to meet Yes, I'd love person. that too. I'll important. try to make that okay. happen. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, thank you, Krista. Bye-bye.